Attention listeners, don't forget to send me your questions for my one-year anniversary Q&A episode in June. Send your questions to truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or send them to me on Instagram at michael.prit81 or send them to me on Facebook at the True Crime Truckers Podcast Facebook group. If you send me a question, which can be about true crime or anything that you'd like to ask me, and you can send multiple questions, also send me your shipping address, and I will send you some free True Crime Trucker Podcast stickers. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The two byproducts of, of that whole tragedy were uh, violence and entertainment and gun control. And how perfect that that was the two um, things that we were going to talk about with the upcoming election. And also then we forgot about Monica Lewinsky and we forgot about the president was shooting bombs overseas, yet I'm a bad guy because I've, I've sang some rock and roll songs. And who's a bigger influence, the president or Marilyn Manson? Do you know, I'd like to think me, but I'm gonna go with the president. Do you know that the day the Columbine happened, the United States dropped more bombs on Kosovo than any other time during that war? I do know that, and I think that that's really ironic, you know, that, that nobody said, well, maybe the president had an influence on this violent behavior. No, because that's, that's not the way the media wants to take it and spin and turn it into fear, because then you're watching television, you're watching the news, you're being pumped full of fear. There's floods, there's AIDS, there's murder. Cut to commercial, buy the Acura, buy the Colgate. If you have bad breath, they're not gonna talk to you. If you got pimples, the girl's not gonna fuck you. And it's just this, it's a campaign of fear and consumption. And that's what I think that it's all based on is the whole idea that keep everyone afraid and they'll consume. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really right. as simple as it can be boiled down to. Right. By noon, SWAT teams were stationed outside the school, and ambulances started taking the wounded to local hospitals. A call for additional ammunition for police officers in case of a shootout came at 12.20 p.m. Authorities reported pipe bombs by 1 p.m., 
and two SWAT teams entered the school at 1.09 p.m. Moving from classroom to classroom, discovering hidden students and faculty. They entered at the end of the school opposite the library, hampered by old maps and unaware of a new wing that had recently been added. They were also hampered by the sound of fire alarms. Meanwhile, families of students and staff were asked to gather at nearby Leewood Elementary to await information. All students, teachers, and school employees were taken away, questioned, and offered medical care in a small holding area before being bused to meet with their family members at Leewood Elementary. Some of the victims' families were told to wait on one final school bus that never came. Patrick Ireland had regained and lost consciousness several times after being shot by Klebold. Paralyzed on his right side, he crawled to the library window where, on live television, at 2.38 p.m., he stretched out the window, intending to fall into the arms of two SWAT team members standing on the roof of an emergency vehicle, but instead falling directly onto the vehicle's roof in a pool of blood. He became known as the boy in the window. They were later criticized for allowing Ireland to drop more than seven feet to the ground while doing nothing to ensure he could be lowered to the ground safely or break his fall. Lisa Krutz, shot in shoulder, arms, hand, and thigh, remained lying in the library. She had tried to move but became lightheaded. Krutz kept track of time by the sound of the school bells until police arrived. At 2.15, students placed a sign in the window, one bleeding to death in order to alert police and medical personnel of Dave Sanders' location in the science room. Police initially feared it was a ruse by the shooters. A shirt was also tied to the doorknob. At 2.30 p.m., this was spotted, and by 2.40 p.m., SWAT officers evacuated the room of students and called for a paramedic. Hansi and Starkey were reluctant to leave Sanders behind. By 3 p.m., the SWAT officers had moved Sanders to a storage room, which was more easily accessible. As they did so, paramedics arrived and found Sanders had no pulse. He had died of his injuries in the storage room before he could receive medical care. He was the only teacher to die in the shooting. Krutz was finally evacuated at 3.22 p.m., along with Patty Nielsen, Brian Anderson, and the three library staff who had hidden in the rooms adjacent to the library. Officials found the bodies in the library by 3.30 p.m. By 4 p.m., Sheriff Stone made the initial estimate of 25 dead students and teachers, 50 wounded, and referred to the massacre as a, quote, suicide mission. President Bill Clinton issued a statement. I want to begin by saying that Hillary and I are profoundly shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton where two students opened fire on their classmates before apparently turning their guns on themselves. I have spoken with Governor Bill Owens and County Commission Chair Patricia Holloway and expressed my profound concern for the people of Littleton. I have spoken to Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder and who, along with Attorney General Reno, is closely monitoring the situation. I've asked the Attorney General and the Secretary of Education to stand ready to assist local law enforcement, the schools, the families, the entire community during this time of crisis and sorrow. 
A crisis response team is ready now to travel to Colorado. And I strongly uh, believe that we should do whatever we can to get enough uh, counselors to the families and the children uh, as quickly as possible. I know the other communities that have been through this are also ready to do whatever they can to help. I think that uh, Patricia Holloway would not mind if I said that amidst all the turmoil and grief uh, that uh, she and others are experiencing, she said to me uh, just a moment ago that perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge if it could happen in a place like Littleton and we could prevent anything like this from happening again. We pray that she is right. Stone said that police officers were searching the bodies of the gunmen. They feared that they had used their pipe bombs to booby trap corpses, including their own. At 4.30 p.m., the school was declared safe. At 5.30 p.m., additional officers were called in as more explosives were found in the parking lot and on the roof. By 6.15 p.m., officials had found a bomb in Cleobold's car in the parking lot, set to detonate the gas tank. Stone then marked the entire school as a crime scene. At 10.40 p.m., a member of the bomb squad who was attempting to dispose of an undetonated pipe bomb accidentally lit a striking match attached to the bomb by brushing it against the wall of the ordnance disposal trailer. The bomb detonated inside the trailer, but no one was injured. The bomb squad disrupted the car bomb. Cleobold's car was repaired and, in 2006, put up for auction. On the morning of April 21st, bomb squads combed the high school. By 8.30 a.m., the official death toll of 15 was released. The earlier estimate was 10 over the true death toll count, but close to the total count of wounded students. The total count of deaths was 12 students, 14 including the shooters, and one teacher. 20 students and one teacher were injured as a result of the shootings. Three more victims were injured indirectly as they tried to escape the school. It was then the worst school shooting in U.S. history. At 10 a.m., the bomb squad declared the building safe for officials to enter. By 11.30 a.m., a spokesman of the sheriff's declared the investigation underway. Thirteen of the bodies were still inside the high school as investigators photographed the building. At 2.30 p.m., a press conference was held by Jeffco District Attorney David Thomas and Sheriff John Stone at which they said that they suspected others had helped plan the shooting. Formal identification of the dead had not yet taken place, but families of the children thought to have been killed had been notified. Throughout the late afternoon and early evening, the bodies were gradually removed from the school and taken to the Jeffco coroner's office to be identified and autopsied. By 5 p.m., the names of many of the dead were known. An official statement was released naming 15 confirmed deaths and 27 injuries related to the massacre. On April 22nd, the cafeteria bombs were discovered. In the days following the shootings, Rachel Scott's car and John Tomlin's truck became memorials, and impromptu memorials were held in Clement Park. On April 30th, carpenter Greg Zanis erected 15 six-feet-tall wooden crosses to honor those who had died at the school. Daniel Robar's father cut down the two meant for the gunmen, and there were also 15 trees planted, 
and he cut down two of those as well. On April 30th, high-ranking officials at Jeffco and the Jeffco Sheriff's Office met to decide if they should reveal that Michael Guerrera had drafted an affidavit for a search warrant of Harris's residence more than a year before the shootings, based on his previous investigation of Harris's website and activities. Since the affidavit's contents lacked the necessary probable cause, they decided not to disclose this information at a press conference held on April 30th nor did they mention it in any other way. Over the next two years, Guerrero's original draft and investigative file documents were lost. In September of 1999, a Jeffco investigator failed to find these documents during a secret search of the county's computer system. A second attempt in late 2000 found copies of the document within the Jeffco archives. Their loss was termed troubling by a grand jury, convened after the file's existence was reported in April of 2001. It was concealed by the Jeffco Sheriff's Office and not revealed until September 2001, resulting from an investigation on the TV show 60 Minutes. The documents were reconstructed and released to the public, but the original documents are still missing. The final grand jury investigation was released in September of 2004. In the wake of the shooting, victims Rachel Scott and Cassie Bernal came to be regarded as Christian martyrs by evangelical Christians. Considerable media attention focused upon Berno, who had been killed by Harris in the library, and who Harris was reported to ask, quote, do you believe in God, immediately prior to her murder. Berno was reported to have responded yes to this question before her murder. Emily Wyatt, the closest living witness to Bernal's death, denied that Berno and Harris had such an exchange. The closest living witness to Scott's death, Richard Castaldo, once claimed Harris had asked Scott if she believed in God and murdered her after she answered, quote, you know I do, but this also appears to be untrue. Survivor Valine Schnoor claims that she was the one questioned as to her belief in God. Joshua Lapp thought Bernal had been queried about her belief but was unable to correctly point out where Bernal was located and was closer to Schnoor during the shootings. Another witness, Craig Scott, claimed that the discussion was with Bernal. When asked to indicate where the conversations had been coming from, he pointed to where Schnur was shot. In August of 1999, students returned to the school and Principal Frank DeAngelis led a rally of students clad in, quote, We Are Columbine shirts. Several former students and teachers suffered from PTSD. Six months after the shootings, Anne Marie Hotchotler's mother killed herself. Greg Barnes, a student who witnessed Sanders get shot, committed suicide in May of 2000. The shooting was planned as a terrorist attack that would cause the most death in U.S. history, but the motive has never been ascertained with any degree of certainty. Soon after the massacre, it was thought that Harrison Klebold targeted jocks, blacks, and Christians. Both sought to provide answers in their journals and videotapes, 
but investigators found them lacking. In a letter provided with the May 15th report on the Columbine attack, Sheriff John Stone and Undersheriff John A. Dunaway wrote that they, quote, could not answer the most fundamental question, why, unquote. The FBI concluded that the killers were victims of mental illness, that Harris was a clinical psychopath, and Cleobold was a depressive. Dr. Dwayne Fulsoller, the supervisor in charge of the Columbine investigation, would later remark, quote, I believe Eric went to the school to kill and didn't care if he died, while Dylan wanted to die and didn't care if others died as well, unquote. In April 1998, a year before the shooting, Harris wrote a letter of apology to the owner of the van as part of a diversion program. Around the same time, he chastised him in a journal, stating that he believed himself to have the right to stealing something if he wanted to. By far the most prevalent theme in Klebold's journal is his private despair at his lack of success with women, which he refers to as an, quote, infinite sadness. Klebold had repeatedly documented his desire to kill himself, and his final remark in the basement tape shortly before the attack is a resigned statement made as he glances away from the camera. Quote, just know I'm going to a better place. I didn't like life too much, unquote. According to this theory used by Dave Cullen for his 2009 book Columbine, Harris had been the mastermind. He had a messianic level superiority complex and hoped to demonstrate his superiority to the world. Cleobold was a follower who primarily participated in the massacre as a means to simply end his life. There have been other attempts to diagnose Harris and Cleobold with mental illness. Peter Langman believes Harris was a psychopath and Cleobold was a schizotypal. Professor Aubrey Immelin published a personal profile of Harris based on a journal entries and personal communication and believes the material suggested behavior patterns consistent with a malignant narcissism, pathological narcissistic personality disorder with borderline and antisocial features, along with some paranoid traits and unconstrained aggression. The FBI's theory has been met with criticism. For instance, Cleobold, not Harris, was the first to mention a killing spree in his journal, and there is evidence to suggest that both students were depressed, such as Harris had been described antidepressants. The link between bullying and school violence has attracted increasing attention since the massacre. Both the shooters were classified as gifted children who had allegedly been victims of bullying for years. Early stories following the shootings charged that school administrators and teachers at Columbine had long condoned bullying. Critics said this could have contributed to triggering the perpetrator's extreme violence. Cleobold said on the basement tapes, quote, you've been giving us shit for years, unquote. Accounts from various parents and school staffers described bullying in the school as rampant. Nathan Vanderau, a friend of Cleobold, and Alyssa Owen, Harris's 8th grade science partner, reported that Harris and Cleobold were constantly picked on. Vanderu noted that a cup of fecal matter was thrown at them. Reportedly, they were regularly called faggots. Cleobold is known to have remarked to his father of his hatred of the jocks at Columbine High School, adding that Harris in particular had been victimized. Cleobold had stated, quote, they sure give Eric hell, unquote. Classmate Chad Langland stated, Quote, a lot of tension in the school came from the class above us. 
There were people fearful of walking by a table where you know you didn't belong. Stuff like that. Certain groups certainly got preferential treatment across the board. Unquote. Brown also noted Harris was born with a mild chest indent. This made him reluctant to take his shirt off in gym class, and other students would laugh at him. After the massacre, an analysis by officials at the U.S. Secret Service of 37 premeditated school shootings found that bullying, which some of the shooters described, quote, in terms that approached torment, unquote, played a major role in the more than two-thirds of the attacks. A similar theory was expounded by Brooks Brown in his book on the massacre, No Easy Answers. He noted that teachers commonly ignored bullying and that whenever Harris and Cleobold were bullied by the jocks at Columbine High School, they would make statements such as, quote, don't worry man, it happens all the time, unquote. Dave Cullen disputes the theory of revenge for bullying as motivation. While acknowledging the pervasiveness of bullying in high schools, including Columbine High School, he has claimed that they were not victims of bullying. He said Harris was more often the perpetrator than the victim of bullying. During junior year, Harris and Klebold both had been confronted by a group of students at Columbine High School, all members of the football team, who sprayed them with ketchup and mustard while referring to them as faggots and queers. According to Brown, quote, people surrounded them in the commons and squirted ketchup packets all over them, laughing at them, calling them faggots. That happened while the teachers watched. They couldn't fight back. They wore the ketchup all day and went home covered with it, unquote. Laughlin stated, quote, I caught the tail end of one really horrible incident, and I know Dylan told his mother that it was the worst day of his life, unquote. According to Laughlin, it involved seniors pelting Cleobold with ketchup-covered tampons in the commons. In a fact check published on the 19th of April, 2019, on the eve of the 20th yearly commemoration of the massacres, Jillian Brockwell in the Washington Post underscored that Contrary to popular view, Harris and Klebold were not the so-called trench coat mafia, and no isolated outcasts or loners, and that their attack was not revenge for being bullied. During and after initial investigations, social cliques within high schools such as the trench coat mafia were widely discussed. One perception formed was that Harris and Klebold were both outcasts who had been isolated from their classmates prompting feelings of helplessness, insecurity, and depression, as well as a strong need for attention. This concept had been questioned, as both Harris and Klebold had close circle of friends and a wider informal social group. One of Harris's last journal entries read, quote, I hate you people for leaving me out of so many fun things, unquote. Quote, the lonely man strikes with absolute rage, unquote, wrote Klebold in an interview Brown described them as the school's worst outcasts, the losers of the losers. 
sociologist Ralph Larkin has theorized that the massacre was to trigger a revolution of outcast students and their dispossessed, quote, as an overly political act in the name of oppressed students victimized by their peers. The Columbine shooter redefined such acts not merely as revenge, but as a means of protest, of bullying, intimidation, and social isolation, and public rituals of humiliation, unquote. One author argues Columbine was only increasingly linked to terrorism after the September 11th attacks. On the basement tapes, Harris claimed that they would, quote, kickstart a revolution. Klebold wore a Soviet Union pin on his boots during the massacre. The attack occurred on April 20th, Adolf Hitler's birthday, which led to media speculation that the attack was political. Some people, such as Robin Anderson, stated that the pair was not obsessed with national socialism and that they did not worship or admire Hitler in any way. In retrospect, Anderson stated that there were many things the pair did not tell friends. Harris at least did revere the Nazis and often praised them in his journal. Harris was enrolled in German class. Klebold and Harris might have originally selected April 19th, the date of the Oklahoma City bombing, as the date of the massacre, but the attack occurred on April 20th. Harris needed more ammunition from Mark Maines, for which one had to be 21 years old to get from Kmart, and Maines did not get it for him until the evening of the 19th. Maines asked if Harris was going shooting that night. Harris replied he would tomorrow. In 2001, Kmart announced it would no longer sell handgun ammunition. In one scheduled meeting with his appointed psychiatrist, Harris had complained of depression, anger, and suicidal thoughts. He was prescribed Zoloft. He complained of feeling restless and having trouble concentrating. His doctor switched him to Luvox. Toxicology reports confirm that Harris had the antidepressant Luvox in his bloodstream at the time of the shootings. Cleobold had no medications in his system. Opponents of contemporary psychiatry, like Peter Bregan, claim that the psychiatric medications prescribed to Harris may have exacerbated his aggressiveness. Harris wanted to join the United States Marine Corps. His application to the Marines was rejected shortly before the shootings because he had taken Luvox. According to the recruiting officer, Harris did not know about this rejection but Brooks Brown said that he did. Blame for the shootings was also directed at heavy metal or dark music bands. Immediately after the massacre, a majority of blame was directed at Marilyn Manson. In the weeks following the shootings, media reports about Harris and Cleobold portrayed them as the trench coat mafia, as part of a gothic cult. Early in media reports alleged that the shooters were fans and were wearing the group's t-shirt during the massacre. Although these claims were later proven to be false, news outlets continued to run sensationalist stories with headlines such as Killers Worshipped Rock Freak Manson and Devil Worshipping Maniac Told Kids to Kill. Speculation in national media and among the public led many to believe that Manson's music and imagery were the shooter's sole motivation, despite reports that revealed that the two were not big fans. Despite this, Marilyn Manson was widely criticized by religious, political, and entertainment industry figures. Under mounting pressure in the days after Columbine, 
The group postponed their last five North American tour dates out of respect for the victims and their families. On April 29th, 10 U.S. Senators, led by Sam Brownback of Kansas, sent a letter to Edgar Bronman Jr., the president of Seagram, the owner of Interscope, requesting a voluntary halt to his company's distribution to children of, quote, music that glorifies violence. The letter named Marilyn Manson for producing songs which eerily reflect the actions of Harrison Klebold. Later that day, the band canceled their remaining North American shows. Two days later, Manson published his response to these accusations in an op-ed piece for the Rolling Stones titled, Columbine, Whose Fault Is It?, where he castigated Americans' gun culture, the political influence of the National Rifle Association, and the media's irresponsible coverage, which he said facilitated the placing of blame on a scapegoat instead of debating more relevant social issues. On May 4th, a hearing on the marketing and distribution of violent content to minors by television, music, film, and video game industries was held by the United States Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. The committee heard testimony from former Secretary of Education and Empower America co-founder William Bennett, the Archbishop of Denver, Charles J. Chaput, professors and mental health professionals. Speakers criticized the band and its label mate Nine Inch Nails for their alleged contribution to a cultural environment enabling violence such as Columbine shootings. The committee requested that the Federal Trade Commission and the United States Department of Justice investigate the entertainment industry's marketing practices to minors. After concluding the European and Japanese leg of their tours on August 8th, the band withdrew from public view to work on their next album, 2000's Hollywood, in the shadow of the Valley of Death, as an artistic rebuttal to the allegations leveled against them. Manson appeared on April 2001 of The O'Reilly Factor, which he once again denied that the band's music was responsible for Columbine. Bill O'Reilly argued that disturbed kids without direction from responsible parents could misinterpret the message of the music as endorsing the belief that, quote, when I'm dead, then everybody's going to know me, unquote. Manson responded. Well, I think that's a very valid point, and I think that um, that's a reflection of not necessarily this program, but of television in general. If you die and enough people are watching, then you become a martyr, you become a hero, you become well-known. So when you have things like Columbine and you have these kids that are angry and they have something to say and no one's listening, the media sends a message that if you do something loud enough and it gets our attention, then you will be famous for it. Those kids ended up on the cover of Time magazine. The media gave them exactly what they wanted. and That's why I never did any interviews when that happened, when I was getting blamed for it, because I felt that I would be contributing to what I found to be uh, reprehensible. During the supporting tour for Hollywood, Manson appeared in Michael Moore's 2002 documentary Bowling for Columbine. His appearance was filmed during the band's first show in Denver since the shooting. When Moore asked Manson what he would have said to the students at Columbine, he replied, I wouldn't say a single word to them. I would listen to what they have to say, and that's what no one did. Harris and Klebold were both fans of German rock bands KMFDM and Rammstein. Harris's website contained lyrics from both artists, 
such as KMFDM's Son of a Gun, Stray Bullet, and Waste, as well as translations for the songs done in German. In the same blog post which he threatened Brown, Harris wrote, quote, I'll just go to some downtown area and blow up and shoot everything I can. Feel no remorse, no sense of shame, unquote. The last sentence is a quote from the KMFDM song Anarchy. As above, Klebold wrote in Harris's yearbook, quote, My wrath for January's incident will be godlike, and he wore a shirt saying wrath during the massacre. Wrath and Godlike are songs by KMFDM. On April 20, 1999, KMFDM released the album Adios. Harris noted the coincidence of the album's title and release date in his journal. Quote, a subliminal final adios, tribute to Reb and Vodka, thanks KMFDM, I ripped the hell out of the system, unquote. KMFDM's frontman, Sasha Konsko, responded to the controversy with a statement. First and foremost, KMFDM would like to express their deep and heartfelt sympathy for the parents, families, and friends of murdered and injured children in Littleton. We are sick and appalled, as is the rest of the nation, by what took place in Colorado yesterday. KMFDM are an art form, not a political party. From the beginning, our music has been a statement against war, oppression, fascism, and violence against others. While some of the former band members are German, as reported in the media, none of us condone any Nazi beliefs whatsoever. of some of the victims filed several unsuccessful lawsuits against film companies over such films as The Basketball Diaries, which included a dream sequence with the student shooting his classmates in a trench coat. In the basement tapes, they debated whether or not Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino are appropriate choices to direct films about the massacre. Their home videos also show inspiration taken from Pulp Fiction, both were fans of the film Lost Highway, Apocalypse Now was found in Harris's VCR. They were avid fans of the movie Natural Born Killers and used the film's acronym NBK as a code for the massacre. In February 1998, Klebold envisioned a massacre with a girl like in the film, writing, Soon, either I'll commit suicide or I'll get W, a redacted girl's name and it will be NBK for us. In April of 1998, Harris wrote, When I go NBK and people say things like, Oh, it was tragic, or Oh, he is crazy, or It was so bloody, 
I think, so the fuck what? You think that's a bad thing? In Harris's yearbook, Klebold wrote, The Holy April Morning of NBK. Around February of 1999, he wrote, Maybe going NBK with Eric is the way to break free. In Harris's last journal, he wrote, Everything I see and I hear, I incorporate into NBK. Somehow, feels like a goddamn movie sometimes. Violent video games were also blamed. Parents of some of the victims filed several unsuccessful lawsuits against video game manufacturers. Harrison Klebold were both fans of shooter video games such as Doom, Quake, Duke Nukem 3D, and Postal. Harris wrote the massacre will be like an L.A. riot, the Oklahoma bombing, World War II, Vietnam, Duke, and Doom all mixed together. In his last journal entry, Harris wished to get a few extra frags on the scoreboard. They were avid fans of Doom, especially Harris, said of the massacre. It's going to be like fucking Doom. He also wrote, I must not be sidetracked by my feelings of sympathy, so I will force myself to believe that everyone is just another monster from Doom. In Harris's yearbook, Klebold wrote, I find a similarity between people and Doom zombies. Harris named his shotgun Arlene after a character in the Doom novels. Harris said the shotgun was straight out of Doom. The Tech-9 Klebold used resembled an AB-10, a weapon from the Doom novels that Harris referenced several times. After the massacre, rumors circulated that Harris created a Doom level resembling Columbine High School, but the alleged levels were never found. Harris spent a great deal of time creating a large wad, named Tear, the German for animal, and a song by Rammstein, calling it his life's work. The wad was uploaded to Columbine's school computer and to AOL shortly before the attack, but appears to have been lost. Following the Columbine shooting, schools across the United States instituted new security measures such as a see-through backpacks, metal detectors, school uniforms, and security guards. Some schools implemented the numbering of school doors in order to improve public safety response. Several schools throughout the country resorted to requiring students to wear computer-generated IDs. Schools also adopted a zero-tolerance approach to the possession of weapons and threatening behavior by students. Despite the effort, several social science experts feel that zero-tolerance approach adopted in schools has been implemented too harshly with unintended consequences creating other problems. Despite the safety measures that were implemented in the wake of the tragedy at Columbine, school shootings continued to take place in the United States at an alarming rate. Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, and the Stoneman Douglas were three subsequent school shootings that far eclipsed the terror that took place at Columbine. Some schools renewed existing anti-bullying policies. Rachel's Challenge was started by Rachel Scott's parents and lecture schools about bullying and suicide. Police departments reassessed their tactics and now train for Columbine-like situations after criticism over the slow response and progress of SWAT teams during the shooting. Sheriff Stone did not seek re-election. Police followed the traditional tactic of Columbine, surround the building, set up a perimeter, and contain the damage. That approach has been replaced by a tactic that takes into account the presence of an active shooter whose intent is to kill, not to take hostages, 
known as the Immediate Action Rapid Deployment Tactic. This tactic calls for a four-person team to advance into the site of any ongoing shooting, optimally a diamond-shaped wedge, but even with just a single officer if more are not available. Police officers using this tactic are trained to move towards the sound of gunfire and neutralize the shooter as quickly as possible. Their goal is to stop the shooter at all costs. They are to walk past wounded victims as they aim to prevent the shooter from killing or wounding more. Dave Cullen has stated, quote, The active protocol has proved successful at numerous shootings. At Virginia Tech alone, it probably saved dozens of lives, unquote. After the massacre, many survivors and relatives of deceased victims filed lawsuits under Colorado state law at the time. The maximum a family could receive in a lawsuit against a government agency was $600,000. Most cases against the Jeffco Police Department and school district were dismissed by the federal court on the grounds of government immunity. The case against the sheriff's office regarding the death of Dave Sanders was not dismissed due to the police preventing paramedics from going to his aid for hours after they knew the gunmen were dead. The case was settled out of court in August 2002 for $1.5 million. In April of 2001, the families of more than 30 victims re received a $2,538,000 settlement in their cases against the family of Harris, Cleobold, Maines, and Duran. Under the terms of the settlement, the Harrises and the Cleobolds contributed $1.5 million through their homeowners' policies, with an additional $32,000 set aside for future claims. Maines contributed $720,000 with another $80,000 set aside for future claims, and the Durans contributed $250,000 with an additional $50,000 available for future claims. The family of victim Shoals rejected the settlement, but in June 2003 were ordered by a judge to accept a $366,000 settlement in their $250 million lawsuit against the shooter's families. In August of 2003, the families of the victims, Fleming, Ketcher, Robar, Townsend, and Velasquez, received an undisclosed settlement in a wrongful death suit against the Harrises and the Cleobolds. In 2000, youth advocate Marissa Helmbrecht organized a remembrance event in Denver featuring two surviving students called A Call to Hope. The library where most of the massacre took place was removed and replaced with an atrium. In 2001, a new library, the Hope Memorial Library, was built next to the west entrance. On February 26, 2004, thousands of pieces of evidence from the massacre were put on display at the Jeffco Fairgrounds. A permanent memorial to honor and remember the victims of the April 20, 1999 shootings at Columbine High School was dedicated on September 21, 2007 in Clement Park. The memorial fund raised $1.5 million in donations over eight years of planning. The shooting resulted in calls for more gun control measures. The gun show loophole and background checks became a focus of national debate. In 2000, federal and state legislation was introduced that would require safety locks on firearms, as well as a ban on the importation of high-capacity ammunition magazines. Though laws were passed that made it a crime to buy guns for criminals and minors, 
there was considerable controversy over legislation pertaining to background checks at gun shows. There was a concern in the gun lobby over restrictions on the Second Amendment rights in the United States. Frank Lauterbring introduced a proposal to close the gun show loophole in federal law. It was passed in the Senate, but it did not pass in the House. Michael Moore's 2002 documentary, Bowling for Columbine, focused heavily on America's obsession with handguns, its grip on Jeff Coe, and its role in the shootings. I was a senior in high school when Columbine went down. Coincidentally enough, I share my birthday with Eric Harris. The year before, a good friend of mine moved to Littleton, Colorado. He was a year younger than me. When I heard about the shootings while sitting in the yearbook office of my high school, I immediately left and went home to try to get a hold of him. Hours later, when I finally did reach him, I learned that over the winter break, he had moved one town over and transferred to a different school. In the following days, as the world learned the details of the massacre, I went to my school locker and stuffed my book bag with the one Christmas present I had wanted that winter, a leather ankle-length trench coat. At that time, The Crow was my favorite movie, and I begged for a leather trench coat like the one that Brandon Lee wore in the film. After the events of April 20th, 1999, I never wore that coat to school again. Everyone tried so hard to explain why Harris and Klebold did what they did. They wanted to be able to point the finger and have something or someone to blame. They tried to blame it on heavy metal and hard rock. They vilified artists like Marilyn Manson. However, tens of thousands of teens listened to these acts, myself included, and we didn't shoot up our schools. They tried to blame it on violent video games and violent movies. Yet again, lots of teenagers watched violent movies, and games like Doom and Quake were popular amongst hordes of teens, myself included, and we didn't shoot up our schools. They tried to blame it on antidepressants and uninvolved parents. So many kids were on some sort of mood stabilizer, and we were the biggest generation of latchkey kids, and we didn't shoot up our schools. They tried to blame it on bullying. All kids get bullied in school at some point. Some get bullied relentlessly. And we didn't shoot up our schools. The truth is that there is no one cause for what they did. It was either all of these things together or none of these things at all. Combined with some kind of darkness that was inside them. Something most people don't have. The sad thing is I think that this problem will not go away anytime soon. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show, and get yourself a True Crime Truckers podcast sticker, 
go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on instagram at michael.prit81 i will return in two weeks with another case to present so until then stay safe